I want to thank everyone for being a part of our new podcasting series. We're going to talk about that in a second. First, a little bit of background because this is new. I want to make sure that we tell everybody what's going on. You know, the first version of Liftport started back in 2003 at the conclusion of the NASA Institute for Advanced Concepts Research Study on the Space Elevator. And we were pretty prominent in the development of Earth's space elevator. We did a lot of material sciences work, trying to work on carbon nanotube development. Ultimately, that was not successful. We switched over to working on robotics. I have a bunch of robots and string over here in the corner. Pretty fun. Those were good days. I was 2003 to 2007. In 2007 and 8, the economy started crashing and Liftport closed as a result of some real estate crisis. Fast forward to about 2010, 11, 12, we started paying attention to the lunar elevator, although we weren't a company yet at that point. And then 2017, we officially uh, restarted the company to focus on the lunar elevator, moving away from the Earth system. We were... 14 people back in the first version of the company and now we're at five people so you know vastly different from where we used to be but then in 2020 when the pandemic hit we had we were faced with a real challenge of staying in business continuing on the effort or you know just closing closing down and i and i thought it would be closing down for good so i really wasn't willing to do that so what we wound up doing was pivoting uh, more to a media angle and we wound up doing 27 virtual conferences conferences as a service really it was just to keep the lights on keep the keep the team going and that was pretty effective we had hundreds of guests we have you know, hundreds of hours of um a video on our youtube channel and that's really how we kept the lights on. Now, as the pandemic is shifting modes again, uh, the world is shifting again, rather than us doing conferences as a service, we've moved recently into this new format of uh, podcasts as a service. So we're still working with some of our other clients, but instead of hosting full day events or two day events like we were, uh, we're building out a network of podcasts. And again, this is revenue that keeps the lights on and keep, gets us back into working on the lunar elevator. And with that preamble, I want to I want to come over and start chatting with our guest. I'm uh, super excited to bring Dr. Roger Lanius back on our show. We've had him as a guest uh, a number of times he has a pretty amazing background and career we're going to spend a lot of time on that the thing i want everybody to understand is that where we're at today couldn't have happened unless we came from where we came from and, and we're gonna, i know that's a kind of a complicated sentence but but uh we are in fact standing on the shoulders of giants in this industry and it, they're not all engineering giants. A lot of them are operational and management giants. A lot of them have made decisions 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30, 40, 50 years ago that allow us to be in this spot that we're at today. And so we bring on Dr. Roger Lanius 
because he was a the one-time chief historian of NASA. He was there for a really long time. And then equally impressive, he was the associate director, curator of the Smithsonian Institution. And, you know, you put, you put those two things together, uh, 15 years in one place and 10 years, uh, 11, sorry, 14 years at the Smithsonian Institution and uh, 10 years, 11 years. Actually, but, but you know, that's, you know, you've kind of been in the right place at the right time for sure. a really long time. So uh, let's talk about your background. Let's talk about kind of who you are, how you got here, what, how you got there in the first place. And then you've, in actuality, not figuratively, you've watched history unfold before you. And I would love to hear that story. And then as we move towards the end of the program, we're going to start talking about, you know, if that was our foundation, where are we going next? All right. Okay. Sure. Right. So I can tell you a little bit about my background. You know, I grew up, I'm a, I'm a child. I was born in 1954. I grew up in the sixties, early seventies. I went to college in, you know, 72 to 76, got interested in history. I was I was first a biology major and then organic chemistry almost did me in <laughs> and not unlike a lot of other people changed my major to something I loved. And, and, and that was history. And I first focused on the history of the American West, specifically Mormons in the American West, really pretty far removed from space history. Uh, went on to graduate school at LSU uh, and did a master's and a PhD there, uh, wrote my dissertation, wrote my master's thesis and my dissertation on Mormon history. I, I didn't anticipate doing space or aerospace or anything like that at the time. It wasn't that it was that it, it didn't interest me. It just wasn't my specialization. And, uh, and so I was really focused on the 19th century American West and there is a relationship there in the context of spaceflight because we talk about frontiers and uh, that was very much wrapped up in the American West of that time frame as a frontier. But now we're talking about the space frontier. Mm -hmm. And as we learned from Star Trek, the final frontier. <laughs> right. We can debate that if you wish. The, <laughs> but when I went looking for a job, when I finished my PhD, uh, I thought I'd probably go to a university somewhere, but I had the opportunity to go to work for the U.S. Air Force. Oh, and interestingly enough, it's something that uh, that uh, I had not anticipated. But there are hundreds of historians associated with the federal government in all capacities, in all kinds of agencies. The military services have a large number of historians, uh, basically to document what happened and why it happened and to serve as uh, expert specialists on various aspects of, of military history that can then help their commanders make better decisions, senior officials make better decisions. And so uh, when, you, when you look at the Department of Defense, you'll find literally hundreds of these people there, and other agencies have them as well. NASA certainly does, does to this day. And in fact, uh, a new chief historian for NASA was just selected last week. It's Brian Odom. Great news. I'm delighted to see him come aboard. I look forward to great things from him. But my my work with the Air Force was was truly astounding. I learned 
how public history functions. And when you think of public history, basically it's people who are practicing history. And that's what we do is practice it in the same way you practice law or you practice medicine, whatever else it happens to be in a profession. And you do it outside of the academy, outside of the university setting. And that's that's what a public historian does. And so I spent 35 years as a public historian, first with the Air Force uh, in a variety of capacities there. Uh, and then in 1990, I moved to NASA to be the chief historian. It was nothing I had planned. It was something that was an opportunity. And literally, I saw an advertisement for a job with this. And in those days, it was an advertisement okay. that was on paper, you know, put on the uh, put on the bulletin board uh, of the HR office <laughs> where I worked. Uh, you know, in, in the in the organization that I was working for, and I looked at this and I thought, this might be fun. Let's let's give it a shot. And lo and behold, I was selected for the position. Didn't have a background in that uh, per se. Didn't have an aerospace history background when I started working in aerospace history. But and I felt initially, I felt a little concerned about that, you know, I, and at one point I asked my supervisor who hired me to work for the Air Force, I said, why did you, why did you right. select me for this particular position? I have no background in this area. And he says, I don't care about that. Uh, I can put you on a reading assignment and we can bring you up to speed in terms of subject matter. Right. And, and he did, uh, you know, he gave me about 50 books and and we sat down and talked about them on a weekly basis. And it was like a, you know, it was like a, 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 a more of my educational background. It was a second PhD, practically. Well, sort of, but I, and it wasn't quite that rigorous. But yeah, it was it was it was an involved process. And by the time I was finished with that, I knew pretty I, I knew quite a lot about aerospace history. And and he said, what I really care about is, do you have the capability to to research as you're supposed to? and to analyze as you're supposed to, and to present in a way that is understandable to those who do not have this background, and, and present in both scholarly ways where you write like a book or an article, you have footnotes and all of that sort of stuff that those of us who do academic work understand, and, or can you write that, that point paper, they called it that with the Air Force, you know, a one or two page bullet point thing of here's the background, here's the issue, here's a here's a recommendation. And can you do those things? And oh, by the way, can you present orally and make it understandable to somebody? Can you communicate effectively? Those things I apparently knew how to do, at least at some level. And clearly, that's been a very important aspect of this throughout my entire career. So I spent 12 years at NASA. I was there 1990, just after the Hubble Space Telescope was deployed in the spring of that year, I arrived at NASA headquarters and one of the first crises was, oh my goodness, the Hubble Space Telescope was not working properly. Right. Is there any precedent for that? Well, yeah, by the way, there is. <laughs> there's, there's always glitches. There's always problems. And in this particular case, as as the people working the program realize, you know, we, there's a lot of things we can do to try to fix this. And they, they did that and ultimately servicing uh, the Hubble and fitting it out with new uh, hardware uh, in 1993. 
So I served as a chief historian until 2002 when I got an offer I couldn't refuse from the Smithsonian's National Air and Space Museum. And your, uh, your notation says associate director, not of the Smithsonian, but of the National Air and Space Museum is my particular role. And I spent, you know, 15 years there until I finally retired in, in, in 2017. Well, let's, let's talk about what you were doing um, first at NASA. Those were times when things were changing. The, the shuttle was, the, the shuttle was flying again, right? right? And so we in the space nerd community, I wasn't working yet. Uh, I was still a, a, a solid fan. Uh, you know, we were told it was going to fly every week. It was going to fly every other week. We had expectations for what the space station, uh, the space shuttle was going to do that was going to be transformative. You know, and then that obviously was not really the case. And, and, and now it's really easy to point back and say, OK, we, 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 we knew that now it's obvious to see. But at the time, we were still being fed in the fan community. We were still being fed the line that it was going to fly every week, every other week, and that it was going to change everything. So you're in this historic position where you're watching current stuff happening but your job is to be the historian evaluating what did happen. So where, where were your thoughts during those days? Well, I, so, you know, the chief historian has responsibility for the, for, for capturing the history of the space agency. I call it space agency because we so often refer to it, but that's only one of the missions. Obviously there's a lot of aeronautical research that takes place as well. Very important things that are a part of that. My task was to, to collect information, preserve that information, and make it available in whatever form we view as the most expeditious. And, and the NASA history program is built around several things. One is, um, is the collection of that material and placing it in archival, uh, an archival setting where it can be used in various things, places. So where I was at the NASA headquarters in Washington, D.C., we did that for you know, the large, broad aspects of, of NASA history. The centers also had uh, component history functions there. Sometimes those functions were very uh, broad and expansive and, and uh, well-organized. And sometimes it was, you know, one person who sort of did things as an additional duty, as something that they thought was important, and so they would carry it out. Uh, but all of them had some aspect of the, this particular function. We had a liaison uh, as a part of this function with the National Archives and making sure that the historical record is properly kept, that the agency transfers its, its official records to the National Archives for, um, for permanent retention. And, and then beyond that, the uh, sponsorship of historical projects. And there's a long history at NASA of doing that. The first NASA historian was appointed in 1959, only a year, less than a year, after the agency was formed. Okay. And, um, and that was really the result of, and there's a requirement inside the federal government that, that every agency preserve its history. But there's very little of, of a stipulation on how you go about doing that. And, and in NASA's case, the first NASA administrator uh, T. Keith Glennon, uh, oh, was T. Keith Glennon, was the president of Case Institute of Technology in Cleveland. 
Okay. And um, and that is now Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland. A faculty member there, a historian faculty member, basically whispered in his ear and said, you know, this agency is going to make a lot of history. You really need to be aggressive about capturing that history. And Glennon responded in the best way possible. Okay, how do I do that? The recommendation was look at the military programs, see the, right. how they have done this, because they've done a really good job. Right. And uh, and in that particular case, uh, Glennon hired the first historian, hired from the Air Force as a historian to come work for them. And Gene Emmy, Eugene Emmy, was the first NASA historian brought in in 1959. He stayed there until he retired in the mid-1970s. Wow. So your history was... You came from the Air Force and moved over to NASA, and you're following the footsteps of the original NASA. Yeah, now, now there had been other historians right. before me. Uh, you know, I was not his immediate successor, but but I did have a similar career path in the sense wow. that I'd been working for the Air Force and I moved over to NASA from there. And Emmy began to sponsor historical projects, and most of them at that point in time were book projects. Okay, sure. So let's let's get an outside specialist, somebody who's not employed at NASA, who has historical credentials to come and write and do this as a contract for us. Um, whatever type of of book project you think might be useful, and they and they took all kinds of forms. The human spaceflight programs almost immediately, under his tenure, had historians put into those efforts to try to document them, and some of them in real time. Wow. Uh, you know, they're sitting in the offices with the people who are doing the work, collecting documentations, doing oral histories, doing interviews with people, and then putting together various products associated with it. A lot of things that they did initially were chronologies, something as simple as, OK, what happened on this particular day? Okay. Uh, and, they, and I mean, they're boring to read, but they are an enormously significant right. Uh, right. documentation of what took place. And, and then more analytical works as well uh, uh, followed from there. And so this versioning program, which Emmy set in very good stead in terms of, of uh, creating an ongoing historical function at NASA, certainly the agency wanted to continue that, but they also wanted to move in a broader direction. And I tried to bring that uh, to some uh, fruition as well. And so it was while I was there that the first web pages were created. I was going to say, you were there at the beginning of the Internet. You know, we decided pretty early on this is a very effective way to try to communicate. But it, you can't just put a book on online, really. I mean, that it's a different product. We did put books online, by the way, but not not all the time. And uh, and that was not our primary function. We also saw opportunities to do things that had never been possible before. For instance, one of the things that we did when I was there was a um, we got hundreds of requests, if not thousands of requests a year for, for photographs. Oh, sure. Yeah. And uh, the public affairs function had responsibility for maintaining all of these in, as pictures. Okay. And, you know, somebody would call and we'd say we'd want something and they would provide it to them. So we came up with the idea, okay, well, can we, can we round up a, a thousand of the best images in NASA and put them all online? And, and have really good captions associated with it and the information about the image, when it was taken, where it was taken, who took it, and put it up in sufficient resolution that if you wanted to do a book or a magazine article or whatever it happened to be, you just go download the high resolution version. Right. 
So each of these was up in three three resolutions, sort of a, a small version that you could use, you know, with emails and stuff, and larger version that you could put online, and then a big version if you wanted to publish it in a big book. And we called it Great Images in NASA or GRIN. Great. Unfortunately, not the world's best acronym, but <laughs> you know, it served a purpose. And that stayed on in place long after I was gone and has migrated to a new platform since that time. And no longer is called Grim, but it doesn't matter. It's still out there right. and all those pictures. And at some level, we've been a little bit selfish. We didn't want to have to fulfill all these requests from people, you know, <laughs> sending them hard copies of things. Just tell them, go online, get whatever you want. Right. We got it. Here you go. And there's, there's a bunch of various pictures of the day uh nasa's got a dozen pictures of the day there's a luna group there's a astronomy group those are ones i pay attention to but there's a lot of pictures so that was that was you really in the beginning well i mean people have done other pieces to this obviously and it's carried on long after i i mean i left there almost 20 years ago so um uh it's carried on since that time but uh, yeah i was i was a part of the process to discuss and, and and put it forward I was working at an internet company, uh, at my internet company back in the, back in those early days. It was astounding the the crossover, the Venn diagram of new internet nerds, which there was a whole classification of people there, and then space nerds, and they got together. And when uh, we landed on Mars back in July, maybe it was ninety. Three, maybe? No, no, no. It was later than that. 97, 96. You're something thinking like. of Pathfinder. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it broke the internet. It was the first time the internet got broken because there was so much interest, so much activity. Uh, you were you were there during those days, yeah? Uh, yeah, sure, certainly. I mean, um, so Pathfinder was a major event. There's no question about that. Uh, it excited everybody and, and it excited everybody mostly because of what we discovered in the context of, of uh, what had been suspected but wasn't certain. And, and the certainty really didn't come until a little later was that Mars was once a watery planet. And, uh, and if that's the case, we know that water is, you know, liquid water is a fundamental building block of life as we know it on this planet. So uh, that would suggest that if Mars was once a watery planet, uh, the potential for some life having existed there at some point in the past uh, might be fairly high. Yeah, it might be microbial life or something else that we couldn't. It's not. It's not little green men. I don't believe. Uh, not some. Not some entity we can communicate with. But, um, but it might have been there at one time. And who knows? It may still be there underneath the soil, wherever under the surface. Right. So those are your early days at NASA. You kind of laid a foundation for how things were going to be maintained, I think importantly, how it's going to get distributed to the public. Were there any, were there any challenges? Were there any um, uh, landmines or quicksand that you kind of felt like you had to avoid uh, <laughs> while you were, while you were there? Oh, sure. There's always landmines. One of the things that I, I took as my mantra when I was there was that it, that my job is to, is to document the history of NASA. Mm-hmm. Not to document the history of Boeing or any other organization out there that may be aerospace. Yeah. But but they and, and in some of those instances, they have their own historians and their own archival capabilities. And they're doing that for uh, for their for themselves. That's great. 
But that's not my job. My job is to tell the story of NASA. Yeah, there, there's a lot, there's fuzziness in the areas because so much of what NASA does, it does under contract or through grants. And so all of these outside entities, which I didn't view as my purview to tell their history, right, uh, right. are a part of the NASA story too. And so we did some things along those lines, but we tried not to uh, to get too far down that that path to stay focused on the agency itself. I did the same thing in the context of biography. Biography is really important. Lots of people like it. There's no question that it's uh, that there are actors out there who are significant and deserve biographical studies. But but you have to ask yourself the question: Should you get into the business of writing the biographies? of, and I, when I say that, I'm thinking of book link things, you know, the NASA administrators, for instance. I mean, I, right. there's no question that these people are really significant and they have, uh, they have a story to be told. Is it the responsibility of the agency to tell that story? So, so we did focus on certain things that were related to NASA and biography, but nothing beyond that. I mentioned Keith Glennon a few moments ago. Glennon kept, my goodness, uh, this does not happen often today. He kept a very detailed diary. Wow. Uh, of his time at NASA. And, uh, and it's really illuminated. He said he wrote it for his children. Okay. And that that's perfectly understandable. Uh, but I had a copy of this thing and I looked at it and I went over and saw him. He was retired at this point. Okay. He didn't live a lot of years beyond when I talked to him, a couple of years is all. And I asked him if it would be appropriate for us to publish this as as the diary of the first NASA administrator. Right. And we did, right. 1993. And you can find it online if you have a desire to look at it. It carries the main title, The Birth of NASA. And the subtitle is The, T the Diary of T. Keith Clinton. But we thought that was appropriate. It focused on his time at NASA. He had a long career being a university president, being a sound engineer during World War One, and two, you know, being a really significant individual in a lot of settings, but it seemed appropriate to sort of keep it to his NASA experience. We did that sort of thing. You know, I can, I can debate whether or not that's the best thing to do, but that's the approach that I took. Uh, some of my successors have taken a more expansive area along this arena and have been willing to go down that road in terms of doing more biography. That's fine. I don't criticize them for doing that. That's just not the approach I took. Uh, so, so how did you choose what, what was, you know, I don't want to say worthy. That sounds really harsh, but you know, how, how did you choose the things that, I mean, there were, there were, there were astronauts to choose from. There were, uh, Movies like Hidden Figures make us aware of people that were that we didn't know about, like the pop culture didn't know about. Right. So how did you how did you choose what uh, what how did you pick your choice? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I mean, we had a you know I had my own ideas. Obviously, uh, I had any number of people suggest things to me. Sure. Yeah. Uh, and those were often good good ideas. Uh, I, uh, I had an advisory committee that met on an annual basis and, uh, we would sort of go through and rack these various ideas up. I had a long list of projects and I'm sure the 
my successors have had long lists as well. Probably different projects, but that doesn't matter. You know, once I had that list, then I would, you know, start trying to figure out ways to try to get them done. Uh, How big we was your team? We always had to raise funds. Yeah. Okay. Uh, there was some. There, there was a small amount of money available each year uh, for doing contract work and things of this nature, but it was a small amount. And so I spent a lot of time talking to people in program offices, uh, explaining what would be appropriate about whatever the project happened to be. And in, the, in a few cases, they would come to me and say, you know, we really think there needs to be a, a history of thus and so. Okay. And, uh, and my standard response to that was, Okay, I don't disagree with you, but uh, pay for it. Show me the money. Yeah, <laughs> and, right. Pay for it. And 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 they did in some cases, and some of those projects turned out really well, uh, and some some didn't. But that's you know that's sort of the way it went. Uh, I you know I'm very proud of a few projects that we that we got going that uh, uh, that yielded you know really significant work. Uh, Howard McCurdy in 1997, this was done as a contract to, to the history office, uh, did a book that uh, appeared with the title Space and the American Imagination. And it's sort of a culture study of, of space flight in American culture. And it won awards and it, it's become a benchmark in the historiography of, of NASA and space flight. Uh, and I'm very proud of what happened there. Uh, we did a documentary history series called Exploring the Unknown. There are seven volumes in this. It, 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 it's a, it's a, it was a team effort under the leadership of John Logston at George Washington University. One of my professors. And I'm a big fan of Logston. There you go. And John, John's a terrific person. He's a political scientist technically, but he learned the secret handshake to be a historian. And <laughs> he learned the secret handshake and uh, and and did a lot of really significant work. I mean, not just the Exploring the Unknown series, but other things as well. And the, the Exploring the Unknown series is essentially a set of introductory essays on a particular subject. And then keyed to that introductory essay are primary source documents from NASA or wherever else that illuminate this. And when we started that project, we didn't envision it as an online resource. That came a little bit later. So they are all published as big books, and they are big. There's no question about that. Uh, and they're also all online now if anybody wants to access them. They're a great, uh, a, a great source for lots of things. So if you want to read Robert Goddard's method of reaching extreme altitudes from 1919, you may do so in Exploring the Unknown. Uh, if you wish to look at any number of other key documents in NASA history, you may do so in Exploring the Unknown. This also led us down the, down the road of creating policy documents online, which we did as just PDFs. You can go download them. So if you want to see the entirety of Kennedy's speech to go to the moon, uh, the urgent national needs speech from, uh, from May 25th, 1961, in which only a small part of it talks about Apollo, and going landing on the moon, uh, you may do so in the with, in the reading draft that he used for the speech. It, it's up online. It's various places now. It's been picked up and it's at the Kennedy Library, but there's one also at the NASA History Office on uh, on the headquarters server, and I'm sure a variety of other places since then. Such an important topic. Anyway, so those sorts of of things are are projects I'm quite proud of. Nice, nice. I. Uh... 
I I am a fan of the uh, of some of the Kennedy speeches in their entirety because you know we always hear the certain excerpts excerpts, but there's so much more to that. Uh, it's pretty amazing. Uh, let's uh, let's switch gears a little bit. Um, okay. You you, uh, you teed us up a moment ago when you start talking about the differentiation between say a Boeing history of going to the moon versus a NASA history of going to the moon or a Boeing history of working on the space shuttle versus a NASA history of working on the space shuttle. I actually think that's a really important distinction because while they are near, they are not of NASA, right? And, and so I, I actually am pleased to hear you say that you, that you made that distinction and that that was a significant thing because I had never thought about that. That wouldn't have crossed my mind, you know, as an outsider. But let's let's talk about you know your kind of your next iteration going off to the Smithsonian Institution because I'm gonna guess that your role changed and maybe broadened. Is that a is that a safe safe guess? Sure, that's a fair that's a fair assessment. So my move to the Smithsonian was one where I would be uh, a curator uh, in the space history division at the National Air and Space Museum. Those are my colleagues, they're historians as well. Uh, I'd known them for years and I was you know, very comfortable with that group. And I, it seemed like the right time to leave NASA and I was happy to do so. And, uh, and I was looking for a new challenge and, and, and this was a broadening of this. Uh, I mean, the Air and Space Museum's mission of course is to document air and space history for the United States. I mean, that's that's its function. Although um, it does take a, a, a bit more expansive approach than I did say at NASA. So there's a lot uh, uh, about the Soviet program, for instance, and the juxtaposition of it with the American program. Now we did this at NASA as well with some of our work, but, but not maybe in, in quite the same way they do at the Air and Space Museum. Uh, and the artifacts, that's a different realm altogether. We didn't collect artifacts at NASA. Uh, there you was, didn't? Um, uh, we didn't, not the history oh. office. Uh, just, uh, that was the, the artifacts, so there is a property, there is a property uh, uh, management system that exists at NASA. And, um, and, and they're the ones that have, have custodial responsibility of, of property associated with the okay. agency. And, and so the, um, uh, you know, name the name the historic artifact of your choice, and um, and it it started after its service life is over, and it has no more need for uh, for use in in the technical arena of NASA. Then it is put into the system, which uh, the property custodians then could lend it to other organizations. Okay. Okay. They could make the effort to transfer ownership of it to the Air and Space Museum. And there was a an agreement between NASA and NASM, the Air and Space Museum, okay. that goes back to the 1960s, where those objects of historical significance, which is the vast majority of, of, of things may not be in that category, uh, that would be transferred to the Air and Space Museum. So at the end of Apollo, for instance, all of the capitals, the spacesuits, all the very lots of other things associated with the program were transferred to the Air and Space Museum, and so they had ownership responsibility for those, uh, and and that has always been a negotiation. Okay. 
I mean, it's an amiable yeah, sure, negotiation, sure. but it's a negotiation. Uh, so there are some things that NASA wants to keep uh, for display in their visitor centers, for instance. Well, okay, it's their property. They don't have to give it to us. We would urge them to do so. You have to always ask the next question, which is, do we need this particular object or is one over here just right. as good? And and sometimes there's sort of a, a wealth of riches that, that that uh, that you have to decide whether or not it makes sense to do that. So all of the all of the human capsules for Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo that were flown are belong to the National Air and Space Museum okay. today. Most of them are loaned other places by. Uh, you by only have so much real estate to work with. Well, and, and, and why, why do you need why do you need Apollo why do you need Apollo eight and Apollo ten and Apollo. Uh, 11 and Apollo, you know, whatever the Apollo number is of the spacecraft, you don't need them all lined up there to display. So it makes sense to to uh, loan those to other right. locations, which is what's happened. And they're under the very good care of, of museums in a variety of places around, around the country. But I didn't have responsibility for any of that when I was at NASA. That was not my okay. purview. Okay. So let's stick with the let's stick with what you were doing. At, thank you for clarifying that. By the way, that's that's I had just assumed as the historian that that would be part of your tasks. Uh, that's that's interesting. Um, so then, when you're at NASA, the National Air and Space Museum at the Smithsonian Institution, how did your roles change, especially now that you have different stakeholders? You have public stakeholders as opposed to a governmental organization, NASA. Right, right. Yeah, so the communication function at NASA was really built around sort of scholarly enterprises as well as as, as things that were more public and popular and, and educational for, for school age. And, and that's all fine, but it was all two-dimensional type things, you know, not, not artifacts per se. So now we have artifacts. And that's a different kettle of fish. I and mean, they're on display at the at the National Air and Space Museum or other places around the country where they're loaned. So the curator's role is to is is basically basically fourfold. First, you are you are a scholar, you are a historian. Your your objective is to contribute to the body of knowledge about this subject. And that was something I always took very seriously at NASA and anywhere I've ever been. Beyond that. Then there's the curatorial function, and it has several several aspects to it. The first aspect is is collecting something that's out there. The Air and Space Museum, in fact, the Smithsonian as a whole, does not really buy artifacts. So if somebody shows up on our doorstep and says, "I've got," use an example of recently they've discovered in in the seabed a uh, a piece of the Challenger. Right. Yeah. Just, Just this week. Yeah. So. So if somebody were to show up at the Smithsonian with that and say, I want to sell it to you. Well, the first thing we'd say is, well, NASA owns this and that's, that, that's the law. Okay. So they, they get to do with it, whatever they want. You need to talk to them. But beyond that, even if you had free and clear title to it, we would not purchase it from you. you we might accept a donation if you wish to give it to us, but otherwise... We wouldn't. We wouldn't take it. So spaceship, the, um, spaceship One uh, was owned by Scale Composites or Burt Rutan or some whatever the chain of custody of that is. Uh, that was on loan. I believe it's still there, right? I think it's still there. It, it's still there, and it's not it's on not. loan. It was given to us. Paul Allen was actually the funder for Scale Composite Composites, and so he, along with Burt Rutan, 
uh, and there might have been another party or two involved in this, agreed that they would donate it to the okay. museum. And, uh, and at the time it was donated, after they had won the X Prize in 2004, I think it arrived 2005 or 2006. I mean, that was a story that everybody was wanting to, to hear right. about and see the object. And, and most assuredly, Bert Rutan and Paul Allen wanted to tell the story of how they, without any involvement from the federal government, engaged in space right. flight. right. I mean, there was range management issues and things of that nature, but you know, NASA didn't fund right. this project, so that was that was a story that certainly they wanted to tell, and quite frankly, we wanted to tell it too because it's an important right. story, and uh, and so we were delighted to to have that as a donation to the museum. I I should tell you that I had a particular astronaut who was upset with us for accepting that. Really. And I, and no, I, won't no, say I don't want you to have any getting into that. But, but his argument was, it does not belong there hanging in the milestones of flight gallery between the Bell X-1, the first airplane to fly faster than the speed of sound, and the Spirit of St. Louis. It was nothing more than a stunt. Does not, does not belong in this august place of uh, display. Wow. Well, my response to that was, what do you think the spirit of St. Louis? Right, was? the spirit of the the, the X Prize was the X One was the the, the, the uh, X Prize was modeled after the spirit of St. Louis as a stunt. It was, and and here we are, you know, nearly twenty years later, and that machine has fundamentally changed uh, all of spaceflight and arguably the world. So I think you made the right call. I'm just okay. going to say. No, no, I, I, I agree. And by the way, af after I explained that to him, he, said, he just sort of smiled and says, yeah, you got a point Well, <laughs> I'm going to acknowledge my bias. I was on the tarmac when that thing lit off. Um, I was I okay. was with Leonard David and the, uh, the photos from space.com, I took them. So I have a very personal place in my heart for Spaceship One. So, you know, so, so there's no way I cannot be biased. But I'm a little surprised that there was pushback on that. I am. I'm genuinely. Surprised. It wasn't. It wasn't a. You know, it wasn't serious pushback. I mean, you know, we were there looking in the milestones of flight gallery, talking about the objects that were there, and he just sort of said, "It doesn't belong here." And <laughs> okay. I said, well, no, wait a minute now. All right. Well, I'm glad you. <laughs> and he saw. He saw okay. Cool. Very cool. Very cool. I bet you there's probably a lot of stories like that, right? Where. Okay. Where uh, you know, you have to make a decision, and no matter what decision you make, it's going to ruffle feathers from one constituent or another. Yeah. Oh, sure, it's it's always the case. We were offered the uh, gondola from the the Red Bull sponsored high altitude. Oh, right, yeah, and and we accepted that. That was perfectly understandable. But but there were those who thought that we ought to put that in a more special place where it would be seen by more people. Specifically, they would have liked had it in mind. Right, the 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 Red Bull people definitely wanted it to be there. Yeah. Sure, and, and and we didn't right. agree with that. Uh, it, it's on display; you, know, you can see it, but it's 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 not in the place necessarily that some would have thought it was appropriate to be in. That's that's fine. There are differences of opinion, and you can't always necessarily make the best call on everything. We've had 
lots of folks who've showed up over the years and said, I really think you need to take thus and so, whatever that is, and needs to have this place of honor and be permanently displayed. And, and we have to push back on that. We don't, we, we never tell somebody we're going to, we're going to display something permanently right. that binds us and all the generations that succeed right, us. Right, right. And it does so legally because that's a part of the uh, gift agreement. We just have to avoid that sort of thing. I've had, uh, I've had some of my robots, uh, you know, especially some of the ones that have climbed a mile into on a tethered balloon. You know, those have gone on display at a couple different museums, and it's fun. And I can certainly attest to the pride of having uh, a widget that you crafted be on display. So I can understand where 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 people have uh, you know bias and 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 obvious self interests about you know some of this stuff. But that's your role as a curator is to pick and choose. What's something that you know that you got that y'all have that you that is not really readily available. Like, how do you how do you decide? Okay, well, I want this thing to be up and available, but we just don't have the room, or we don't have the story, or we don't have the rights, or something. Imagine a uh, an Indiana Jones style warehouse where stuff is uh, <laughs> is stored. Yeah, well, if you saw the uh, if you saw the night at the museum right. battle for the right. Smithsonian or whatever. Right. You know that that storage area is all under the mall, which, by the way, doesn't okay. exist. But that's another reason. <laughs> no, we can never we can never collect yeah. everything, and even if it's historically significant, we can't collect everything. So uh, there, there there's this practicality that's associated with it. There are lots of things that I that I would like to collect and have on display at the museum in 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 Washington. Uh, one of them, for instance, is a Saturn V rocket. We don't have one on right. display. Now, NASA had three. They transferred the ownership of those three uh, to the Air and Space Museum. So technically we own them, but they are located at the Kennedy yeah, Space Center, in Huntsville at the Space and Rocket Center, and in Houston at the uh, Visitor Center, part of the tour at, uh, at, the, at the Johnson Space Center. And I'd love to have one of those in the museum in right. Washington too big. It's, Where it's, do you put it? It's, it doesn't yeah. And, uh, and, and this was a constant source of concern for us early on when I arrived at the Air and Space Museum, because those, those rockets were sitting outside right. yeah. and, uh, and degrading as a result of that. Fortunately, they built a new, a new center for, for the Saturn V down in, uh, down in Florida. And that was the first one to open. They did the same thing at um, in Huntsville at the Space and Rocket Center, and now there's one, uh, which also that rocket had to be have a lot of res restoration work done on down in Houston as well. So they're properly cared for and made available for people to see. That's the most important thing. I I'd love them to be in D.C., but that that's beside the point. They're preserved and they're made available for for people to experience. Great. So in our last 10 minutes, I want to start talking about the future, right? So we talked about there were... Uh... Oh, by, by the way, before we leave yeah. artifacts, there are some artifacts that I constantly talked about wanting to okay. collect. And that was everything left on the moon. <laughs> uh, I'm sure you're aware. And, I, and, I, and, and, and I, I volunteered more than once to be the first curator there happy to put up the ropes right. and stanchions around tranquility base and to, and to shepherd all the visitors to come through someday. We'll have we to do that. I, if, if there's, 
this is absolute yeah. certainty. But maybe we won't see it in our lifetime. We'll oh, see. I'm gonna I'm gonna go on a limb and say that's gonna be a thing. I'm sure you're aware of uh, Michelle Hanlon's program um, for all mankind to uh, to catalog, right. archive, and you know make uh, make political treaties that say these are these are keep out zones. Um, International Space right. University was pretty involved with that uh, a long time ago. Right absolutely those are those are necessary artifacts and and they're not going to move we're not going to move but we need to we need to identify them and preserve them because they are part of right not just american history but humanity's history so uh, well and that's absolutely right i i sat on a nasa uh committee i think this was 10 years ago or so uh, sort of trying to come up with a, some rules of the road that we might try to pursue uh and and we're still, I mean, those got those got pushed forward, but there's still no international agreements in place yet uh, on this. And what we don't want to have happen is what's happened in Antarctica, right. where there wasn't anybody around, so people go in and carve their initials in in Scott's hut, you know, all kinds right. of stuff. We don't want to see that sort of no, thing. No, no, no. I would uh, I would love to see the equivalent of a UNESCO World Heritage Site or something like that declared. So. Uh, I'm a big fan of that work. I think that I think I think it is impossible to go forward without knowing where we've come from, which is why I really enjoy sure. your your insights in history. Uh, so where where you know we came from a point where there were two budgets, two organizations with one goal, right? You had the Soviets versus the Americans aiming for the moon. Right. And, and now, now, if you had told me 20 years ago that we would be where we are now, I would not have believed it. Right now we have 50 or 60 space agencies. We have thousands of companies, thousands of individual budgets being allocated for hundreds of targets and goals. So. So how do you look at that from, you know, with your lens as a historian, imagining where we're going to go to the future? So just riff off of that for a minute. because I Okay. Well, one of the things I, I need to say to start with is that everything has a history and this one does too. From the point that the space race begins in the early 1960s, other nations are looking at this and, uh, and they're seeing and they understood that the future belongs to the civilization that can master science and technology. They knew it. They knew it then, and they know it today. Wait, wait, wait. Uh, Let's just and, pause and, for a second. The future belongs to the civilization that can master science and technology. That, that's a great. That's a great quote. I'm going to try to remember that. Thank you. That 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 was worth your hour all by itself. Thanks. Good. <laughs> But but so they so they look at what the Americans and the Russians are doing. And, and, and this is especially non-aligned nations, maybe emerging nations who've just come out of colonial status. I always point to a country like India, which massive population, you know, several hundred years of British rule and uh, and they become an independent nation. And what is that nation going to be? Clearly, they're going to be a regional power. But are they going to be anything more than that? And and their leadership thought. Absolutely, we want to be. So how can we work with the Americans and work with the Russians and maybe both of them at the same time even uh, to sort of get get our foot in the door with this stuff? Because this technology, it's, it's good not just for racing to the moon. It's good for all kinds of things. 
And those, those all kinds of things can be commercial, they can be military, they can be whatever. And so we want to be a part of it. And so you find international agreements put in place in the early 60s between the U.S. and allies. Uh, most of them are traditional allies, European allies, uh, but they also include Japan and various other countries to, to do things cooperatively because they want a piece of the action. And it's not sending humans to the moon. It's about, right. you know, a commercial satellite of some kind, a, a, com a, communi a communication satellite, for instance, or a reconnaissance satellite, for instance. And, and they need the expertise of these two geopolitical powers that are locked in a Cold War because they're the only ones that have the capability to do this yet. But very quickly, they start to, uh, uh, they start to develop that capability. And, and by the latter part of the 1960s and into the first part of the 1970s, they're starting to launch their own satellites. Uh, in some cases, they're building their own launchers. And, uh, and, and there is such a flowering, especially in the 1970s, of space agencies and activities writ large in space, not human spaceflight per se. Right. I mean, there might be partnerships with the Americans or the Russians to fly the occasional person, but, but it's really other things other than, than human spaceflight initially. That is a remarkable story that's not really been very no. well told. And, and it really is the result of them seeing the space race and realizing what this can be, what this can do for that particular country. So this has a long history and it's been building to this point. You know, when I arrived at NASA, there were a number of space agencies out there. You know, ESA was operating it. It, it, it had put online the, the Ariane rocket, uh, which at that point wasn't wasn't nearly as successful as it would become later on, but uh, but they had that agenda and and their and their intention per se was to free themselves from reliance on the either the Americans or the Russian to launch whatever they wanted to launch into orbit. They wanted to be able to go it alone, not that they would necessarily. They're happy to collaborate, but if they needed to, they could. And that is repeated over and over and over again. And I, I'm fascinated by some of these, these programs uh, that emerge, a place like Indonesia, of all places. You know, islands upon islands, this archipelago right. that extends across the Pacific, realizes almost immediately the way to tie this country together is to build communication satellites Amazing. and to put them in place so they can communicate with each other. And this becomes an early agenda item. So... So there's this long history of, of, of nation states initially, uh, but then obviously there's a corporate world associated with this uh, as well. And then ultimately entrepreneurial activities that follow on to lead us to where we are today. And, and it's important to understand this. And I recognize it's now, I'm, I'm sort of into overtime, I bit, think. So you need to stop me when I no, bore no. you. But there's one final thing I'd like to say. For all the people out there who celebrate the success of Elon Musk's SpaceX, and they have been successful, no question about that. I'm, you know, I'm delighted to, to, uh, to, uh, to acknowledge that. Other launch companies that have developed in the period as well, that story goes back a lot of years to orbital sciences in the 1980s that build on their own dime without government investment the Pegasus right. rocket, which was an air-launched orbital system that could carry payloads. 
yeah, you know, it's a weird thing, but right. it worked. And of course, their Antares, uh, uh, I think orbital science has now lost its identity and it's a part of Northrop Grumman. But, but for years, it was orbital sciences, then orbital ATK. And, you know, it's, it's evolved over time. And that story is one of entrepreneurs setting out to do these sorts of things, absent government investment. And there might be other government help, certainly the technology development they got help on. But uh, but in terms of NASA funding it, offering them a contract, not right. so much. No, it's it's astounding to me. You know, I said at the beginning of the program that we started out as uh, as a NIAC, uh, you know, as an offshoot of a NIAC project. And there's no way you could have convinced me in in 2003 when I started Liftport that that reusable rocketry was more feasible than a space elevator. You could not have convinced me. And 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 obviously, you know, time is told that I'm completely 100% wrong. Uh, and I'm glad that the world has changed the way that it has. But there's no way you could have convinced me in 2001, 2, and 3 when that document's being put together that reusable rocketry would be uh, the mainstay of how we move back and forth to space. Like I would not have been believed yeah. that at the time. So pretty, pretty amazing. All right. Uh, Dr. Roger Lanius, really glad to have you here. You know, I think I'd like to ask you back for another part two of this, where we go into current events based on historic, uh, precedent, because, you know, uh, I hadn't actually thought about the orbital sciences element to it, but that's uh, that's a nice little nuance. So let's uh, let's let's have you come back and uh, and kind of bring us up to speed with where we are. As always, sir, it's a pleasure to to have you here. Uh, and and with that, we're gonna we're gonna sign off. And I, I appreciate your time. Thank you, sir. Thank you. I appreciate it. You'd be glad Great. to come back. Terrific. Take care. Bye bye.